0: You may be seated. How many of you felt like you were in school just a few moments ago with a counting clock and a pencil out, and you know, I had one person who's probably a little type A after the last service stop me in the hallway and say, um, well, what's the right answers? Like, they really wanted to know what the right answer was. Thank you for taking the time to fill out that survey. Hey, one of the activities that my family loves to do is that we love to hike outside. We love to be in the great outdoors, and our vacations are often punctuated with great moments where we get to have, like, a signature hike. And we've learned over the years that there are some things that make a hike better than other moments. One of the things that makes a hike really good is that you've gotta have a very clear path and you've gotta have an unmistakable destination. I want to show you a picture up on the screen here of a time, this is one of those iPhone camera just snapshots. This is when we were in Switzerland, and look at this very clear path, and you have an unmistakable and even an inspiring destination in order to hike towards it. And sometimes in your life, you're going to be on that journey, you're going to be on that hike, and you're working your way towards that destination, and it's really clear, and it's wonderful, and it's a blue clear sky, and it's fantastic. But there are other places where you hike, where it looks more like this, where you've got kind of a boulder field in front of you, and in light of this, you're not quite sure what your destination is supposed to be as you make your way across it. You don't have an exact footprint for where you're supposed to put your next step. So sometimes in life, we're able to march on a really clear path and have that beautiful vista of where God is taking us, but there's a lot of other times in our lives where we're hiking, and when we hike, we don't know exactly where we're going, and we're not sure where even our next step will come from. Well, out in the wilderness, they have a method by which to try to help you with moments like this. And the technical term for this is that they're called cairns. Cairns is an ancient 15th century kind of uh, Scottish term, but this practice goes back for a long, long time. And what happens is when you come to a boulder field or maybe you come to a granite patch that's so large that the path disappears is that someone who's gone before you will stack stones in an unnatural way that you know that's the way forward. And you might not be able to see the next Karen until you get to that first Karen. But by the time you get to that first Karen, you'll be able to identify that next Karen. And these are far more effective than a compass and a map. Because if you're anything like me, a compass and a map, they're good tools. But I can still get lost with those. Heck, I can even get lost in the streets of Atlanta with GPS and the voice of Siri telling me what to do. And yet when you have these Karens, when you have these... Great little markers that tell you, you might not be able to see the path, you might not be able to visualize the destination, but if you keep following these Karens, I promise you, you're gonna get to where you're supposed to be. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Bible is filled with both literal and metaphysical, or metaphorical rather, probably metaphysical too, but metaphorical Karens that it goes all the way back to the time of Jacob when Jacob sleeps one night. He has that dream of angels ascending and descending. He wakes up. He takes the rock that he used as a pillow and he wakes up with the realization, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't even know it. And so he takes that rock and he stacks other rocks on top of that because he does not want to forget this. He knows he's going to move ahead. He knows people are going to follow. And he wants to make sure that he's able to get back to this destination. So he builds up a rock carrot. He pours oil over it. He prays. He worships there. And we learn the promise in the Bible, even at that far in the scriptures, that God is with us. You fast forward several chapters to the time of Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel that are about to enter into the promised land. And this is kind of a line in the sand moment, a crossing of the river. And so in that moment, Joshua gets the 12 tribes to pull their representatives together and they stack the rocks up and they make a Karen and they worship and they bless in that moment. And they know that God in that moment is not just with them as they learned in Joshua, but that God is uniting them together. Think of King David in a metaphorical sense. He grabs five smooth stones, five rocks, that little handful of a charon to remind them that God always protects them. And even if you fast forward all the way to the New Testament, you can almost see Jesus assembling the disciples. It's almost like he's pulling together his own Karen of sorts. And and in regards to the disciples, it's because they have rocks in their heads. That's what qualifies them. And so he pulls all the disciples together. And he's even got one who used to be named Simon, but on the declaration of who Jesus really is, he renames him as Petros or kind of Rocky That's Peter's nickname in the New Testament. It's on this rock that Jesus is going to build and found his church, and we find out that God's not only with us and that God protects us and that God unites us, but also that God is calling us and will work through us. You can almost see the Bible as a place of going from one Karen to another to be able to make your way to the glorious promise that we are about to experience today. Now, you might be thinking at this point in the message, you're like, "Um, Rich has gotten a little confused. This is called Palm Sunday, not Rock Sunday. And yet, what I want you to know is that in Luke's account... Of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Luke has no mention of palm branches. We believe that they're there. We know the other accounts that tell us that and emphasize the waving of the palm branches. But Luke has another facet of the diamond of what magnificently happened on that day that he wants to make sure that we don't miss. And it has to do with rocks or stones. Today, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And while you're turning there, what we're going to discover today is we're going to understand one of the phrases of Jesus that you might have heard over and over again. And you probably just thought to yourself, you know, curiously, Jesus, that's a little random. That's a little strange. Because in the middle of this triumphal entry to Jerusalem, when the Pharisees or the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to get the disciples to be quiet, Jesus says to them, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, is Jesus talking about the Rolling Stones, the rock band? Like, what is he talking about in this moment? We're going to get to see, so let's pay attention and read God's holy word. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And he replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put, it on, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So Jesus is marching into Jerusalem at this point, and he's a king, but he's not an ordinary kind of king. We make a whole lot about his mode of transport on that day, that Jesus doesn't march in like Judas Maccabeus before him. He doesn't come in on a magnificent war horse. He's not there to make a military statement in this moment. No, he rides a donkey, a colt, symbolizing the peace and the humility of the invasion that Jesus is about to do. Nonetheless, Jesus is still being chanted and coronated and serenaded as king, they actually use a coronation hymn from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shout over and over again. And it's in response to this that the Pharisees, the religious leaders say, hey, um, Jesus, you need to make your disciples be quiet. Now, oftentimes when we read this at this point, we think, oh, you know what, those Pharisees, they're just being kind of religious sticks in the mud again. But that's actually not what's happening in this passage at this point in time. You need to understand that uh, Jerusalem in particular, but uh, you know, Israel as itself was occupied territory. And that in this space... It was kind of during the Passover, kind of a political hotbed, and it was electric in terms of the talk of revolution, that there was this history of revolt over and over again. And the Romans were very keen that as soon as a crowd started to gather, as soon as things started to appear like that they might get out of control, that they'd shut it down. And so what the Pharisees are in essence saying is, hey Jesus, you gotta get your disciples to be quiet. Do this or somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get killed. Turn down the volume. But Jesus won't rebuke his disciples. Instead, he says, I tell you, if they were quiet, the stones would shout. This happens in a very particular location. The Gospel of Luke is very specific that Jesus comes from a particular set of towns so we know where he's coming from. And then it says he goes down from the Mount of Olives. So he is not very far. He is, you know, maybe 100 yards at this point from the exit kind of of the city gate. This is an image up on the screen of the side at which Jesus was approaching the city. This is known as the Eastern Gate. It is also known as the Gate of Mercy to the Hebrews. It was also known and often called the Gate to Eternal Life. The reason it was called the Gate of Eternal Life, the Gate of Mercy, is because this is from the east side. The east is the side of the rising sun, and it was prophesied that the Messiah that the savior, that the king would enter into the east side of the city and that his reign would be one that would usher in a new kingdom for all eternity. And so Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy During the different seasons in which uh, Jerusalem has been occupied or freed, uh, back in 1541 when uh, Jerusalem was occupied under an Islamic reign, you can see here that the Muslims, uh, and this is still true to this day, that the eastern gate is actually closed. It was filled in because the Muslims did not want for the Messiah to either enter or to return, as the Christians might believe. Now I wanna show you another image. This is a little further back of what the valley is like, the Kidron Valley that separates the Mount of Olives from entering into the east side. And you'll notice that as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem, do you see a lot of stones that are there in front of the wall? Nod your head if you're actually still awake at this moment in time. You do see the stones. You do see the stones. Now most of these stones in particular are probably only around like 500 years old or something along those lines. They haven't been there that long. But archeologists have uncovered stones that have been there all the way back to you know, like 6, 700 years before Christ. They go back all the way to the time of like Elijah and things along those lines. Can you tell what this is? It's a graveyard. Because of the prophecies, because of the predictions, because of the understanding of what this was going to be like, That many people were buried on the eastern side of the city. And so when Jesus is walking along and there's gravestones all along him and they're like, teacher, get your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus refuses to do it. Jesus points to the gravestones and says, you know, if my disciples were quiet, guess what would happen? The very stones would cry out. Jesus is not, you know, doing something completely off the charts in a random metaphor here. He's talking about resurrection. We're not talking about some sort of zombie apocalypse. We're talking about actually resurrection from the dead and the new era of hope dawning. Back in 2010, our family had not been in California for very long. When we started a new school, we were transferred from one school to another. Our oldest daughter was in the first grade. And you know what the chaos is like when you start a new school and all of the parents and all the pictures for the first day of school. That is a little bit of a zoo and it's, uh, it's just not the normal routine. And so you kind of, you, you can't wait, I mean, by the time, if you're a parent and you have young kids, you cannot wait for summer vacation to be over, right? You're like, let's send them to school, let's get a routine, let's get a calendar, let's get a rhythm going on. And yet those first couple of days of school are really special, and it usually takes longer to drop your kids off, because dads drop their kids off, and we don't know how to drop our kids off, and we're going the wrong way in the carpool line, and that kind of stuff. Just hypothetic, other people's parents are like that, but not us. And so school started in 2010 on a Tuesday, and we had Wednesday, and we had Thursday. And by the time Friday came along, it was my day to drive. And I not only dropped the kids off and get that right, but then all of a sudden we're in the carpool line, and I realize that I've totally forgotten something that was essential. And so I had to turn around and drive home, get that item. I don't want to get in trouble with my wife. So I go home and I get the item and I bring it back to school. And by the time I get into the parking lot, find a parking spot, I'm walking a long way over to the front door of the school. And while I walk into the front door of the school, there's this kind of flagpole that's elevated. And there are these two people that are just kind of peering over the wall into the playground where the kids are still playing at this point. And they're kind of like, oh, look, there's our boy. And, you know, you can see them. And I'm walking by them, and I'm like, seriously, guys, this is Friday. You need to get a life. That's what I'm thinking to myself. I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, um, you know, I'm like, okay, look, I can understand on Tuesday. You want to pull out the camera. This is special. This is the beginning of school. We're four days later, people. Like, you need to go to work now. Get a grip. Get back to it. Your kid's going to learn, Okay. So privately, I just judge them, and nobody has to know about that, and I keep walking by. I go into the school, turn in whatever I'm supposed to turn in, come back out, they're still there, but at this point, they make their way down, and and they're making a beeline towards me, they're coming over to me. And so they, they come over to me, they introduce themselves, they're like, hi, we're members of your church, and I'm like, oh. Like, it was one thing when I was just judging random pagans, but now that they're, I mean, they're a part of my church. Now I feel bad. And they're like, we're a part of your church. We're rich and Andrea Dunn. And we've so enjoyed having you here. Oh, thank you. I'm feeling feeling this big, right, at this point. And then they start to tell me their story. That the reason that they're standing there and staring into the playground is that their boy, Julian, who's in the first grade, is that a couple of years before that, he was diagnosed with brain cancer and they weren't sure that he was gonna ever go to school again. And so they were so excited that, that their son was on the playground and he's playing and that he's getting to be normal and be with his friends and they're rejoicing that the cancer's in remission and I felt about this big and now I feel like this big, right? went about our days, and as the year unfolded, sadly, Julian's cancer came back. And it was one of those moments where he went from having an 80% chance to live, to like a 10% chance to live. And I'll never forget what it was like to sit on the floor of their family home and play Legos with Julian to try to talk to him about the hope of resurrection and the gospel that we believe in. At the very end of the first grade year, they had these things called character awards. Every year they would do this at the school. And normally character awards are kind of a tear-jerker moment for a parent anyway. Imagine having a first grader whose cancer has come back and you know this is his last year of school. And this is what the teacher said to Julian. He said, the award Julian that you're gonna get is the award for perseverance. And the scripture that we wanna bless you with is to wait for the Lord, to be strong and to take courage, to wait for the Lord. And then Mr. Wilcoxon, the first-grade teacher, he said this. To everyone's delight, Julian Dunn began his school career as a student in our first-grade classroom last September. The fundamental instruction and lessons that he received at home had prepared him for this rather auspicious start. He's one tough cookie, that's how Mrs. Seeley described Julian. Mr. Pentacuff called Julian the dictionary definition of perseverance. To persevere means to continue along the course in spite of the difficulties. Julian has certainly done that at school and away from school. Smiling through adversity, he has faced up to this challenge with a great deal of God-given fortitude. Bolstered by the grace and the strength of our Lord, immersed in the love of his family, surrounded by a host of ministering angels and saints, he continues to step towards a bright future. Thank God Julian has preserved with his sense of humor intact. His fun, spunky, playful side burst forth even in the most trying of circumstances. May we all learn to endure hardships with such grace, courage, and good humor. Wait for the Lord, be strong. Wait for the Lord. I ask you, what is it that can make a first grader be able to endure a debilitating return of a deadly disease? Only the resurrection. How can a family endure the most tragic thing that a family can go through, watching the deterioration of a son or a daughter? Only the resurrection. How can a community, a community in Egypt, that as they worshiped this morning and gathered like we do to celebrate Palm Sunday, not one, but two bombings early this morning just because they were there to celebrate King Jesus, why do they go and endure? Only the resurrection. You might be thinking to yourself, Rich, you've jumped the gun a little bit this week. Next week is Easter. This is Palm Sunday. Here's the deal. Palm Sunday is all about Easter. These are not ordinary stones that Jesus points to when he says that they will cry out. They are gravestones. And that points to the most important gravestone at all that what's going to happen on that Easter Sunday morning, the most important question that each and every one of us can ask is who will roll away the stone for us? Who will roll away the stone of hatred in our world? Who will roll away the despair of this world? Who will roll away the grief and the stone of this world? Who will roll away my insecurity, my anxieties, my fears? Only the gospel still rolls away stones today. Here's the deal. Palm Sunday and every Sunday is always foreshadowing to the great day, the resurrection day, and Easter joy is available every day of the year. So Jesus is not nearly as random as we think that he is. And I'm here to declare to you today that God is still placing little spiritual Karens out there in front of you that when you're in the wilderness and when you're in those moments where you don't have that clear vista and you don't have that inspiring mountaintop to tell you exactly where you're supposed to go and you're not sure what next step is supposed to entail, that God will give you just enough, enough to make it to the next promise, enough to make it to the next destination so that you will be able to follow him even in those moments when all seems lost. He is still moving stones. He is still going before us and building little memorials of his faithfulness. And the question is, do we believe? And will we follow? Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we thank you so much that you have marked the way for us and that you have gone before us and that we are here to remember your incredible promises. Lord, I pray for anybody here who is marching through life right now and they feel like it's a boulder field or it's a desolate granite countertop of not knowing where to go. Lord, give each and every one of these people a spiritual Karen to remind them of your promises, that you're with us, that you unite us, that you protect us, and that you call us. Thank you, God, that there is certain kind of news that could never be kept quiet and that the promise of your resurrection is certain and sure. And so give us that same hope of a little child that in life and in death we belong to you and that you will roll away the stone for even us.